If you'd all please open up your Bibles with me, turn to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. I'll be reading verses 36 through 10 of chapter 16. And after some, day, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and, and, and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who was called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and departed with him having been commended by the brothers in the name of the, in the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Galatia, strengthening the brethren. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And, an, and, an, and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany them. And he, said, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those areas, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered with them the decrees that the elders and the apostles had been reached by the elders and the apostles who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they, and, and they went through the, the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in, the, in Asia. And when they had come down to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. As they, so passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together as we always do, coming to God's word. Our Father, we do say amen to your word, and we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words through Luke would be with us now and illuminate our minds and our hearts to their meaning and to their value and to their significance for our lives of faith. Father, we, we pray that you would convict us by these words and that you would use them as the double-edged sword that they are to penetrate down into the deepest recesses of our hearts and our beings and expose anything that needs to be exposed within us, any, any ways in which we need to grow, repent, and trust you more. And so, Father, do your work in us through your living and active word, we pray. And as we come to it this morning, I ask that the words from my mouth and the meditations of our hearts upon your holy word would be pleasing in your sight. And to this we all say, Amen. Amen. 
Well, today we are coming back to our study of the book of Acts. And in these verses that I want to look at, and I confess, I don't think we're going to get to all of them, but um, in these verses that we're going to look at probably this week and next week, Luke is, is taking us now from the Jerusalem Council, you remember, where the question of how to handle the Gentiles coming into the church had been taken up, and now he's chronicling for us the ongoing ministry of the gospel through the Roman Empire in the wake of that great council in Jerusalem, and their proclamation that the Gentiles should not be hindered from coming into the church, that their hearts should not be troubled, and that they should be assured that having had faith in Jesus Christ, they had been saved by His grace alone. And that as Christians now, they needed to be sanctified and cleansed from all of the former idolatrous ways of their old pagan lifestyles as they grew in grace and ran the race and and continued on towards glory. And so now... Luke is chronicling this ongoing ministry of the gospel as it continues to grow and spread through the preaching and through the work of the apostles, especially through the ministry of Paul, who's going to become, in the rest of the chapters of Acts, the central figure, the central and main character that's focused on. So, the council had concluded with the writing of a letter And you remember the letter had been taken up to the church in Antioch and delivered to the the Gentile mainly congregation there in Antioch. And they read that letter and and it assured them that, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone. And it exhorted them to keep growing and forsaking sin and living in holiness. And when that letter got to Antioch and was read, it was received with joyfulness, remember, by the Gentile Christians. They weren't bothered by it. They weren't put off by it. They weren't saying, oh, come on, nobody, this isn't what we signed up for. Nobody told us we were going to have to actually change the way we live and do away with all of these things that have always been near and dear to our hearts in this world and stop doing the things that characterize their lives as unbelievers. No, they were, they were thrilled to be accepted as fellow Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ And they were joyful to know the various ways that they could begin to learn to walk in step now with the gospel. So, verse 35 of Acts 15 says that having delivered this letter to the Gentile Christians, Paul and Barnabas remained up there in Antioch for a time, teaching and preaching the word of God, and that there were many other followers of Jesus who were there with them also. And so now that this whole matter has been settled and the church in Antioch is stable from all of the confusion that the false teachers had spread there. They're thriving now. They're growing now in their knowledge of the Word of God. Now, after some time, Paul and Barnabas say in verse 36, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the Word of God and see how they are. Let's do the same thing in all of those cities that we've been doing here in Antioch. Right, Because, of course, just like the Christians in Antioch, the initial proclamation of the gospel wasn't enough. It needed to be followed up with a steady diet 
of teaching and preaching. It's, it's why we come to church every single week. We don't forsake gathering together as the people of God because we need to constantly be feasting together on the Word of God and, and holding one another accountable and learning and growing together so that this ongoing growth in persevering holiness could, could continue and could be cultivated. That's why Paul and Barnabas wanted to go and visit all of the other cities that they preached the gospel to, all the other churches that had been planted, so that they could help those Christians in those places run the race with endurance and persevere to the end, even as we talked about last week from, from 2 Peter chapter 1. So in a real sense now, we have crossed the midway point, the halfway point here in the book of Acts. We've, we've swung from the birth of the church that's, that's chronicled in the opening chapters now to, to, to seeing its ongoing growth and strengthening and maturity throughout chapters 16 through 28 as the apostles, and again especially Paul, continue to press further into the Roman Empire with the gospel and plant more and more churches and to strengthen them with the power of God's word. Now, the title of our sermon today comes from a statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a passage that I absolutely love, and, and it speaks about a reality, a spiritual reality that is absolutely at the heart and the core of his life as a Christian and his life as a minister of the gospel, and it's what drives what we see on display in the rest of the book of Acts as we move beyond the Jerusalem Council and back into the ministry of the gospel. What is it that, that, that fired Paul up to keep pressing on in, in this ministry? Well, turn for just a few minutes here as we, as we lay some groundwork, I think, for answering a question like that. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, really quick, where Paul expresses this great reality and says that it is the love of Christ that constrains him or that controls him as he's ministering the gospel. And we're going to lean on that reality as the foundation for understanding what's going on even here in the end of Acts 15 and, and the beginning of Acts 16 and on into the rest of the book. It's in verse 14 there of 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul says the words, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think those are such foundationally profound words that express exactly the core of what undergirded Paul's ministry for the gospel and gave his life form and definition from the day that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus all the way until his death. And that same reality has to undergird our lives also and give form and definition to what we are, who we are, and the way that we live in this world. Look up at verse 1, the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 there. 
We're going to look just briefly here at the context in which Paul says those words. Flying very quickly over the top. In verses 1 through 5, Paul is talking to the Christians in Corinth about the reality of our mortality. The, the, the frailty and the brevity of our lives in this world. And the inevitability of, of suffering and death in this world. It's, it's how it is in a world that's groaning with sin and in bodies that are, are corrupting and decaying like the rest of the world around us. We, we can't escape this reality. Our lives, he says, are like tents. Temporary dwelling places that are bound to be torn down one day. And his point is that our ultimate hope can't be here, anchored here, in these mortal bodies, in this fallen world. Our hope is in our heavenly dwelling, he says. The permanent dwelling place that God has prepared for us and guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. And that even though we can't see it with our eyes, we hold to it by faith, which is the assurance that God gives us in our souls of things that are unseen. So verse 6 says that even though life in this world is hard and painful and filled with the inevitabilities of suffering and death, we are always of good courage because as Christians who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, we can see past all of the hardships in this life and in this world to the blessed hope of His appearing, to the eternal dwelling here that will be ours in Him. And that great eternal coming hope will be so glorious that none of the sufferings of this life are even worthy to be compared to it. And so verse 7 he says, we walk by faith. This is, this is the whole tenor and substance of our lives. We walk assured of this blessed hope that we can't see yet. We don't walk by sight. We don't walk and live our lives focused on the things that are around us in this world. And it's from this vantage point of faith that there's this very real sense in which we would much rather be at home with the Lord, right? Absent from this place and these corruptible bodies and home with the Lord in the eternal heavenly glory of His presence. And so then Paul says this in verse 9, whether I'm at home or away here sojourning and and struggling in this world, we make it our aim to please Him, right? Not, not to live for self, but to please Him, the one who saved us, who redeemed us, who gave us everlasting life, who gave us the guarantee of this eternal home in the heavenlies, who is sovereign over all of the sufferings of this world, who can and will deliver us out of it one day, but but purposefully now leaves us here for a time. We live for Him, not for us. And so you see how in in an entirely real sense, the Gospel is for the Apostle Paul so much more than just an aspect of his overall life as a whole in this world. A piece. The Gospel gave form and definition to every aspect of Paul's life. From his ultimate hope for the future, to his perspective on his sufferings in the present, and to the purposes of every moment for which he lived. Not for self, 
but to please God. And that's, therefore, he says, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's the whole meaning of my life. See, this is the form, this is the shape and the definition that his life takes as a person whose hope is not bound up in this world, who's, who's walking by faith and not by sight, who's devoted to pleasing God and not living for self. He's so convinced, he's so confident of the realities of eternity that we hold by faith that his whole life in this world that's not his home is defined by persuading others to see this world and their lives and eternity in the same way. Through the one lens that, that gives life any ultimate meaning whatsoever and that lens is the lens of faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Paul's devoted to now. And all of that is what he means when he says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. That word controls means, it means to exercise continuous control over someone. Some English translators use the word constrains or, or, or compels and it's in a continuous sense. And, and those are all good words that translate this Greek word that Paul uses. The, the love of Christ is constantly compelling me and constraining me and controlling me. Because by His great love for me, Jesus died for me in order to give me everlasting life. And the definition of that life now that I live is that I no longer live it for me, for myself. Now I live for Him who died and who was raised for my sake. And I, I wonder how many Christians think this way and live this way in our lives. There is a, there is a tendency I fear in all of us to think about sanctification and Growing in grace and holiness and obedience to the Lord and walking by faith in kind of an outward way that's governed by duty and obligation more than it is by love for Christ. There's a general principle, I think, here. I think it's a universal principle that Paul is giving voice to here, and it's simply this. Human beings who are made in the image of God, human beings tend to live for what they love the most. I think that's how it works. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Human beings tend to live for what they love the most. What do you love the most? Jonathan Edwards used to define the human will as the mind choosing. Boiled it all down and said, I think it's as simple as that. Your will to to live in a certain way and to do certain things and to make certain choices, it comes down to your mind choosing. And his golden rule for how the human will operates is this. The, The will chooses according to its greatest desire at the at the moment of choice. That makes sense, doesn't it? Someone says to me, Steve, do you want a piece of pie? or a donut, or whatever tasty treat you like. And on the one hand, yeah, I like pie. I want pie. I desire pie whenever there's pie. 
And on the other hand, I know from hard experience what tends to happen when I eat too much pie, when I say yes to my pie desires too often, right? The blood sugar goes up, the pant size goes up, everything that you don't want going up goes up. And I desire low blood sugar, and I desire to not be fat. So when faced with pie, there's a choice, right? The simple question becomes this, which do I desire most at the moment when I need to make a choice? And do you see that, that, that Paul is, is speaking to this same reality here? 2 Corinthians 5. What or who we love the most will determine how we live. If I'm mostly consumed with me, my desires, what I want, what feels good to me, what's comfortable for me, what feels safe for me, then I'm going to live my life for myself. And those are the kinds of choices I'm going to make. If I'm mostly in love with this world, which really is just another function of being in love with me, then I'm going to live my life in the pursuit of the treasures and the pleasures of this world. Well, Paul said, it is the love of Christ that controls me, that constrains me, that compels me. Not my own desires, not to live for me, not to store up treasures in this world, not to be safe, not to be comfortable, but to live for Him who loved me so much that he gave everything up and died for me. And so, that meant that Paul's life took on a very distinctive shape and form, right? There were plenty of opportunities that Paul turned down. There were plenty of personal pleasures that Paul forsook. There were plenty of hardships that Paul endured. Because at the core of his heart, the love of Christ was greater than love for self or for the things of this world. And the love that Christ had for him. I love what he says in Romans 5 and verse 5. And I love the way it's said in the old King James. Where he says, the love of Christ has been shed abroad in my heart. Uh, Newer translations, NIV and New King James even and ESV and New American Standard, they say the love of God there in Romans 5.5, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit just because that's what the word means. But the King James uses that, I think, wonderful old phrase, shed abroad. And it's so much, to me, it's so much more picturesque. Right? The idea is that, that the Holy Spirit has just this massive labor full of the love of Christ and he's pouring it out in full measure into our hearts but the King James Version makes me, makes me see it pouring out and then splashing and, and deepening and widening measure all throughout the recesses of Paul's heart flooding his heart deeply and widely deluging his life with the great love with which Jesus Christ has loved him to the uttermost Now, this is the kind of language that Paul is using a lot all over the New Testament. I mean, this is the greatest theologian that's 
that's ever lived, but he doesn't, doesn't often sound like a systematic theologian when he writes, does he? He's talking about this love, this intimacy for the God who has loved him so fully. He's talking, he's describing what he's experiencing as this, this deluge of Christ's love in him is, is then washing out all other loves for self, for world, for pleasure, for whatever. And all he can be full of is, is a motivation to love the God who's loved him. It's causing him to love most the one who has loved him to the uttermost. And that love controls his life in foundational and fundamental ways and, and continuously little ways and massively big ways as he devotes himself to the pleasures of God and to the work of the kingdom. And so, see, we've been talking a lot, especially these last couple of weeks, about the ideas of sanctification, growing in holiness, perseverance until the very end, Right? The necessity of of growing, increasing godliness in our lives as we continually mature in the pursuit of holiness until Jesus comes. And see, the point, this is where it comes from. Sanctification and increasing godliness are not, must not be just a matter of outward conformity to the forms of godliness that are revealed in the Word. Or else we're just... Pharisees, and nothing more. True godliness that is truly increasing and that is truly pleasing to God always comes from an increasing love for God that is being forged in us as we drink more and more deeply of the torrential flood of His love for us, which has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what I want us to be focused on as we press ahead in the book of Acts. I want us to always be asking ourselves, not just what lessons can we learn from Paul's methodology as a missionary and an evangelist and a pastor and a preacher. There's that stuff in Acts. Or what inspiration can we glean from all of Paul's amazing exploits for the kingdom in Acts? There's all of that. But mostly, how can we cultivate a life-constraining love for Christ in our own hearts as Paul did in his own? How can we cultivate that love that would control us and command a growing, maturing devotion to the pleasures of God? which would compel us to seek first the kingdom of God and to count the cost of following and serving Jesus no matter what? That's the question. So, turning back to Acts and to the closing verses of Acts 15 and the opening verses of chapter 16, we're going to take a look, and again, I think it's going to take us more time than we have today, but we're going to take a look at several things that are true here about people's lives that are constrained by the love of God like Paul's life was. The first thing is this. It's that the the God who is all-wise and sovereign is pleased to work through the lives of those people 
who are constrained by His love. And He's pleased to do it in spite of us. And that's good news. This was, this was absolutely true of the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? God was pleased to work through the life of this man who was constrained by the love of God. There are few examples, if any, throughout history of a life which the Lord sovereignly accomplished more through than he did through the life of the Apostle Paul. But here's the thing, and, and, and Paul would absolutely be the first one to admit this. All of it, every single thing that the Lord accomplished through Paul, the Lord accomplished in spite of Paul. And not because of Paul. It was in spite of Paul's former life as a Pharisee, as a hater of God, as a persecutor, both of of Jesus' church and of Jesus himself by Jesus' own words. It was in spite of that that God redeemed Paul and shed this unconditional love abroad in Paul's heart, constraining him to this life of of self-sacrifice and gospel ministry. And I'll tell you what, we see that same reality evidenced here in Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. The work of the gospel that the Holy Spirit would accomplish and be accomplishing through Paul is being accomplished despite Paul's own weaknesses and shortcomings and failures, one of which is chronicled right here. Paul told Barnabas, verse 36, let's return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. I feel constrained by the love of Christ to go back and minister and and disciple and help these people grow. And so verse 37 says that Barnabas wanted to bring John, who's called Mark, with them. Now you remember John Mark. We saw him back in, we met him back in verse, or chapter 13. He was the one who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first journey all throughout Cyprus. But then when they sailed from Cyprus up to Asia Minor and got to Pamphylia and faced that hard, arduous trek up into the mountains to bring the gospel up into Pisidian Antioch and beyond, when they got to Pamphylia, John Mark left. We saw that all the way back in chapter 13. and just said he went, he went back to Jerusalem. He didn't go with them. We don't know why. Luke doesn't give us a reason. He doesn't detail any discussion that they had about it back there. just says that Mark left to go back to Jerusalem instead of pressing on with Paul and Barnabas. Well, here, what we do learn is that Paul wasn't happy about it. He was upset with Mark. Verse 38, Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And and there's some interesting wordplay going on in this verse. That phrase, the work, at the end of the verse indicates that Paul thought there was something important that John ought to get over whatever feelings he had, Mark ought to get past whatever hesitations he had in order to engage in this important work. 
Paul feels like Mark is suffering from cowardice and a lack of moral courage. And then the word withdrawn there in verse 38, which, which Luke uses here. This is a, a much stronger word than the one that Luke used back in chapter 13 when he said that Mark left to go back to Jerusalem. There in Acts 13, in verse 13, it just says that when they all got to Pamphylia, John Mark left. He departed. Apoxeresos is the Greek word. It's just a very general word. It just means exactly that. He left. There's no moral significance to that word. But here now, when Luke records this dispute that came up between Paul and Barnabas over bringing Mark with him again, here... Luke says that, the Paul, that, that Paul was, was using an entirely different word to describe Mark leaving. Here the word is apostanata. And if that sounds to you like the English word apostasy, it's because that's exactly where the English word apostasy comes from. This is a much stronger word. It doesn't just mean he left in some morally neutral sense. It means, it means something more like he, he bailed on us. He abandoned us. He fell away from us and from the work, Paul is saying. This word carries a definitely negative ethical connotation to it. And so see, what we're learning here is that that's how Paul took it when Mark left them back in chapter 13. He took it as as a serious compromise on Mark's part, Uh, a moral failure on on Mark's part. And here now, think about it. Here now, Paul, who was so amazingly saved by the grace of Jesus Christ in chapter 9, which encountered him there on the road to Damascus and literally opened his blind eyes and made him a new creation, Here now, that Paul, who's also recently been back in Jerusalem, fighting tooth and nail to defend the message of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, here now Paul doesn't seem very willing at all to show much grace to John Mark. John Mark, you might remember, is actually the cousin of, of Barnabas. We learn that in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. Their family, their kin. And Barnabas, of course, is the guy who was given the name Barnabas because the disciples early on in the book of Acts knew his character, and that name literally means son of encouragement because that's the kind of guy who he was, a big-hearted, super gracious, always encouraging, winsome guy. And, and, and Barnabas wanted to give his cousin some grace, a second chance. But Paul wouldn't have any of it. And verse 39 says, there arose a sharp disagreement such that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And then Paul and Silas are going to go off and and head north from Antioch and, and up into Asia Minor from the east instead of sailing through Cyprus. And in fact, you're not going to see Barnabas' name anymore in the book of Acts after this point. That's how long-standing this division was. 
that arose over this sharp disagreement. That word means a heated emotional dispute, a fight between the two of them that was severe enough to drive a wedge between them. So that instead of putting differences aside and working together for the cause of the gospel, they went their separate ways. And again, literally, this is the last we hear about Barnabas, at least in Acts. Now, there's a lot of people who say, Paul was in the right. You've got to take a stand. He was right to be concerned about Mark's faithfulness, that it was Barnabas who was at fault here. He was just too nice, and there was some nepotism probably at work, and he cared more about family loyalty to his cousin than the integrity of the work of the gospel. Well, notice that Luke doesn't say that, doesn't take sides at all in recounting this episode. He doesn't lay blame either on Barnabas or on Paul, and whether or not one was more to blame than the other. And and in fact, that's not the point. I don't think it's the case that one or the other was guilty. I think they both were guilty for division. I certainly don't believe that neither of them was guilty. The reality is this, this, this breach between these two brothers, between these two leaders in the church at this point in the church's early development was inexcusable. This absolutely flew right in the face of Paul's own exhortation in Romans 12, right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And he didn't do that here. They didn't have a peaceable disagreement. They didn't agree to disagree. They had a heated argument. They allowed division to disrupt the unity and the peace, not just between them, but but to threaten it in the church. Now, we don't know anything about what happened in the months and years following this division in terms of the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, but we do know that in several of the letters that Paul will go on and write in the New Testament, he wrote kindly of Barnabas. And he also affirmed John Mark and his ministry for the gospel. In fact, Mark is the one who's going to go on and write the gospel of Mark. As God would work through Mark in spite of the fact that Paul didn't think he was worthy to be worked through. So see now, whether or not Paul and Barnabas and Mark ever saw each other, spoke to one another again, how they resolved it all later, we don't know. But it's clear Paul's heart softened. He came back to a much more humble and gracious place towards the ones who he had disagreed with. But here's what Luke is showing us here. Here's the, here's the takeaway for us to embrace in these verses. The sovereign God advances his kingdom through flawed servants. Paul might occupy center stage throughout the rest of the book of Acts, but Paul is not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. And Jesus uses Paul powerfully in the building of his church, and he does it in spite of Paul, and in spite of his weaknesses, and in spite of his shortcomings, and in spite of his failures. And it's knowing that, see, that would result in Paul's 
deepening understanding of and, and, and an appreciation for the great richness of the love of Jesus towards him. Knowing his own failings. Knowing the love of Jesus that would not let him go. That kept on reaching down and saying, get back up, dear child. Keep running. Keep working. Keep preaching. Keep serving. In contrast, right, to how Paul himself had acted towards Mark. You blew it, I'm done with you. God's not like that towards Paul and he's not like that towards me. Thank the Lord and he's not like that towards you. After John Mark let Paul down once and didn't meet Paul's expectations once, Paul was done with him. But in contrast, the grace and the love of Jesus kept on saying to Paul, I forgive you, I don't condemn you, let's go, there's important work to do, and I've got all the grace and I've got all the strength and I've got all the resources of divine power that you need to do it. And that grace and that love of Christ towards him in all kinds of tangible ways all throughout Paul's life and ministry, which would cause him to say at the end of his life and ministry, these words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for a reason. That in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The ongoing experience of the love and the grace of Jesus in response to Paul's sin and of God continuing to work through Paul in spite of Paul's sin, that continued to deepen Paul's regard for the greatness of Christ's love. And that continued to humble Paul and to cause that love of Christ that had been poured into him to flow more and more out of him. And to define his own ministry as a gracious servant and peacemaker. And to become, as the earthenware vessel that he was, the perfect conduit for the treasures of God's redeeming love to flow out of and into this world. God works through us all in spite of us all. And I can't tell you how massively encouraging that is to me every single day and how it causes the love of God to grow sweeter and sweeter to me every single day. And that's got to be our experience. That's got to be our reality because it's the growing sweetness of the great love of God that has been shed abroad in our heart that will constrain us more and more every day to keep on growing, keep on running with endurance, and keep on being trained for godliness, and keep on serving Him, no matter what the cost. It's not, it's not slavish fear that God's going to be disappointed with me if I don't obey Him that drives true obedience. It's not selfish, pharisaical pride that wants to pat myself on the back and be patted on the back because of all the good things I'm doing. That's not what drives real holiness. It just produces an outward conformity. 
Now, it's this growing experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts that constrains us more and more to walk by faith and run with endurance and follow Christ, whatever the cost. Growing love for God is the only place that true growing godliness can ever come from. We got time for one more thing here. There's a second thing I see. There's two more things, but we're going to do one more thing. There's a second thing I see here in these verses, which is this. That those who are constrained by the love of God are governed by the wisdom of God even when it leads them to having to make painful and humbling choices in the service of God and His kingdom. Those constrained by the love of God are governed by the wisdom of God even when it means suffering. Paul and Silas, it says, traveled up through Syria, through Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They came all the way up, this time from the south and from the east, to Derbe, to Lystra. Remember, it was in Derbe and Lystra back in chapter 14 where Paul had been stoned nearly to death, but kept on ministering the gospel. He returns there now. This time he's got Silas by his side. And when they get there, they meet a man, a disciple, it says, a believer, a follower of Jesus, whose name was Timothy. Timothy is the one to whom Paul would write the two New Testament letters, 1 and 2 Timothy 2, later on in his ministry. Because Timothy is going to become a trusted disciple of Paul's. He's going to accompany Paul on missionary journeys to all kinds of places. He's going to labor with Paul faithfully for the kingdom for many, many years and become a a trusted ambassador of Paul and a faithful pastor planting many churches. So we're going we're to learn a lot more about Timothy later in Acts and in the New Testament. And we're going to learn a lot more about his mom and his grandma. We don't learn anything about his dad except what Luke tells us here. In verse 1 of chapter 16, which is simply this, that Timothy's father was a Greek, a Gentile, even though his mother was Jewish ethnically. So Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And the reason why that detail is important is spelled out in verse 3, where we learn that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him in ministry, and he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in these places. For they all knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, hold on. Have we not been reading chapter 15? What's going on here? Did Paul not just come from the Jerusalem council where it was definitively decided that Gentile people do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved and included in the church, right? That was kind of a big deal in chapter 15, wasn't it? And here, on the other hand, One chapter later, he's circumcising Timothy, a fully grown man, because of the Jews that lived around there who knew that Timothy's father was a Gentile. Does it seem odd? Does it seem like Paul's compromising? Maybe here. Maybe he's bowing to the fear of man here and caring too much about what others are going to think. A lot of people teach that, but they're wrong. Here's why. In Galatians chapter 2, 
there's another story involving Paul being pressured to circumcise someone who was a Gentile. There in Galatians, it was Titus. And there are two main differences. First, both of Titus's parents were Greek. He didn't have any Jewish blood in him. He was a full-blooded Gentile, where Timothy was of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And then secondly, in Galatians chapter 2, with Titus, Paul didn't circumcise him. Paul refused to circumcise Titus, even though people were pressuring him to do it. So why? Why Why the difference? Why there... In Galatians, did Paul refuse to circumcise Titus? And here, he did have Timothy circumcised, even though it had been so clear at the Jerusalem Council that circumcision wasn't necessary at all for someone to be saved and included in the church in the New Covenant. The answer is, to all of those questions, the gospel. Here's the deal. In Galatians 2, the same legalistic false teachers that had been causing all the confusion in Acts 15 in Antioch and who were insisting that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved, they were teaching that same thing to the churches in the region of Galatia. So the pressure that Paul was facing there was that people were insisting that guys like Titus had to be circumcised as a full-blooded Gentile in order to be saved. And that's why Paul refused Because the gospel was at stake, just like it was in Acts 15. So to circumcise Titus would have meant to concede ground on the gospel, to concede ground to the legalists, and to convey the message that the Gentiles did need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul wouldn't concede that ground. But see here, in Acts 16 with Timothy, it's a totally different situation. Timothy's half-Jewish. And for Jewish people, circumcision was kind of the the sine qua non of Jewishness. And rabbinic law taught that even if you had a Gentile father like Timothy did, but a Jewish mother like Timothy did, you were Jewish through the bloodline of the mother. And Paul knew that, of course, because he's Jewish, right? And he knew that for Timothy to be uncircumcised as a man with a Jewish mom was highly offensive to the Jewish community. And that that offense could provide an obstacle to the work of the gospel. Kind of in the same way that maybe eating pork could be, right? Remember Paul, Acts 10, Peter had a vision. God said, rise and kill and eat. You're free to eat pork now. But Paul said, look, If I go to the house or if I have a Jewish person to my house in order to share the gospel with him and I put a a big pile of pork on the plate and that's so offensive to him and so disruptive to him and distracting to him that he can't even hear the presentation of the gospel, then I'd, I'd rather not have the pork. I'd rather have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Right? So when Paul, an ethnically Jewish man who had become a Christian, wanted to bring the gospel to Jewish people, this was his practice. When it came to the freedom that he knew he had in terms of eating food that was offensive still to unbelieving Jews, he refrained. 
from eating it, right? 1 Corinthians 8, if eating meat makes somebody stumble, let, let me never eat meat again. He meant he'd willingly limit his God-given freedom if it would remove a stumbling block that might hinder the work of the gospel because the love of Christ constrained him. And honoring Christ and serving the gospel mattered more and loving these people mattered more than his own freedom mattered. Right? He's saying, God has given me the freedom to eat this meat, but if, if eating it causes an offense that keeps someone from hearing the gospel or growing in grace, then I'd much rather abstain from the meat than hinder the work. And that is why in Galatians 2, he refused to have Timothy circumcised, but here in Acts 16, or Titus rather circumcised, but here in Acts 16, he required Timothy to be circumcised. The common denominator is the gospel, see? The gospel determined Paul's choices in both cases. To circumcise Titus, because the legalistic false teachers insisted that salvation depended on it, would have compromised the gospel. Even though it probably would have made Paul's life some easier and alleviated a lot of this pressure that these false teachers were piling on him. But Paul didn't care about that because the love of Christ constrained him. And Paul, now constrained by the love of Christ living not for his own comfort, for his own pleasure, but for what pleases God, who sent his only begotten son to die, Paul would suffer any pressure, any persecution, if it meant removing an obstacle to the true gospel. So in Galatians 2, that meant, no way, I'm caving to the pressure and circumcising Titus, but at the same time, here, Timothy, I want you to come with me I want you to join me in the work of the gospel, and that means I need you to be circumcised to remove any obstacle people might have to hear in the gospel from you. The takeaway for you and for me, according to Paul, by his own teaching, by his own example, our own personal freedoms and liberties that are precious should never become so important to us that our defense of them might produce an obstacle to the gospel and a hindrance for our effectiveness in the kingdom. Because, and here's the bottom line, as important as our objective liberties are, the gospel is more important. Eternally more important. So much more important eternally that Paul's own example, forget Paul, Timothy's own example, right? He's the guy as a full-grown adult man who didn't need objectively to get circumcised to be right with God. But he was the one who did undergo that painful, super-sensitive surgery as an adult male in the first century Roman Empire where there were not sterile operating rooms and anesthesia. Timothy's example, Paul's example, recorded here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to me, says to us, that if the love of Christ constrains us, Christ who gave up all his own personal freedoms, Christ who emptied himself, Christ who considered equality with God something to not be grasped, but took the form of a servant, took on human flesh in the first place, and then laid that flesh down and and let himself be crucified on a cross so that I could be redeemed. And, and so that I could be filled with this everlasting hope and life, if that love constrains me, then 
the freedoms that I am entitled to, am I not willing to lay them aside? Am I not willing to throw them down if they might become an obstacle to the gospel? For Paul, for Timothy, it was the freedom objectively to not have to undergo physical circumcision, and that's kind of a big deal. I'm, a, I'm an ardent advocate of personal liberty. I'm an ardent opponent of the infringement of liberty, and I think that oftentimes tyranny needs to be fought. And I know you're all going to say amen to that, right, in these dark days that we're living. But what I think God's word is pleading with us also to say amen to even more is that the cause of the gospel is so much more eternally important than our individual liberties. That if we're constrained more by the love of Christ, who laid down his own liberty and freedom and privilege and comfort in order to save us, if we're constrained more by this love than than by a love for our own liberty, as precious as it is, then, then we'll be more like Paul, we'll be more like Timothy, we'll be more like Christ, we'll be willing to suffer painful losses if those losses remove obstacles to the work and the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people eternally from their sins. Make sure your love of liberty is a function of your love for Christ and not a love for self. Make sure your love for liberty does not become an idolatrous love for liberty that transcends your love for Christ and His kingdom. For Paul, in 1 Corinthians, it it was simply, if me not eating meat sacrificed to idols, which is okay to eat, if it's not eating pork, if that removes an obstacle, if that means that, that even one person would be redeemed and spared in eternity in hell and spend that eternity in glory and said, then, then I'd gladly never eat the meat again. For Timothy it was of having to undergo a, a decidedly uncomfortable and painful surgery in the first century world that objectively I don't have to undergo if that means that other people might hear the gospel and be eternally redeemed and even see an example of sacrificial love that that points them to Christ, then I'll gladly undergo the surgery. So people whose hearts have been flooded, people whose hearts have been inundated with the great love of Christ who laid down His life to be nailed to a cross and suffer humiliation and shame and pain and loss, people whose hearts have been inundated with this love should be increasingly willing and eager to lay down our own rights in order to pave the way and plow an open path for people to hear and see and taste and know the rights-denying, freedom-abasing, self-sacrificing love of Christ that reconciles us to God and grants eternal freedom, which is infinitely more precious than some of the freedoms that we tend to spend most of our time worrying about and fighting for in this world. Don't misunderstand me. So often the world in its godless idolatry and immorality demands that we capitulate to their standards or else they won't even listen. And that is what Paul faced in the Galatian churches and that is why he refused to have Titus circumcised because he's not willing to subjugate the gospel to the world's idolatrous demands and neither should we be can't concede any ground here. But sometimes we can get more concerned with our own rights than we are with the gospel. 
and God's purposes to eternally redeem lost sinners. And the eternal souls of those sinners can come to matter less to us than our own comfort in this world by exercising our God-given liberties. And that's where the love of God for us, the love of God by which He gave His only begotten Son to us, needs to constrain us to love Him and to love others, whatever the cost. So this is where that servant-oriented, self-abasing, sacrificing love of God constrains us, needs to define us, needs to control us, more than our own personal passions and desires. Jesus didn't come here demanding His own rights. Jesus didn't come here to be served. He came to serve and to lay His life down for many. And so we, in whose hearts this great love of God has been shed abroad, and we who live by faith in Him have to be constrained by that love too. We're out of time. So, the third one is in the rest of the verses that Mitch read for us in chapter 16 up to verse 10, and we're going to cover that next time. For today, pray with me that it will be the unfathomable love of God towards us in Christ, in spite of our sin, that will constrain us and control us to live our lives in self-abasing and self-sacrificing faith for the sake of Jesus' kingdom and glory, no matter what the cost. Let's pray that together today. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for your word, how grateful we are for your grace, how grateful we are for this great love of Christ that has been poured out and shed abroad in our hearts. Father, we pray that your great love towards us would inundate our souls this morning and would give shape and definition to our lives as we seek to serve your kingdom, never ever willing to compromise on truth as you reveal it, never ever willing to capitulate to the pressures of a world that hates you and that hates your truth and suppresses it for the sake of unrighteousness, but always willing to suffer, always willing to count the cost, always willing to bear up the cross in whatever ways, Father, would cause greater advancement for your gospel in this world. And so, Father, use us, we pray, and work through us, we pray, in spite of us and for the sake of your glory. Constrain us by the love of Christ. And, Father, as you do, build your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your bulletins then and turn with me to page 11. And let's all stand together and sing in response to God and His Word, Yet Not I. Let's sing together.